Revenue Recognition Guidance for Nonprofits. I'm going to be speaking to two accounting standard updates. So ASU 2014-09, Revenue from Contracts with Customers. I'm going to refer to this as Topic 606. So last year at this conference, this topic was discussed in detail. 958-605, which I'll refer to as 958, that was in draft form and has since been finalized. So although we did introduce it, I'm going to go into more detail on the two accounting standard updates together and how you'll need to assess the revenue streams applying to each. Now before I do that, I just want to mention that the revenue recognition standards, they're important for all of us in this room to understand. They are complex and they will be time consuming to implement. The overall goal of these new accounting standards from FASB's point of view is to remove the inconsistencies and the weaknesses in current revenue reporting and to improve the comparability of revenue recognition across industry practices. So if you haven't been doing so already, um, the time to get ahead of these is right now. For calendar year filers, these standards came into play January 1st, 2019. For fiscal year filers, you have until July 1st, 2019. Please note that these standards need to be adopted retrospectively, so these will affect your 2018 financial statements if you issue comparative statements. And material impacts, you'll need to do a prior period adjustment to flow the changes through. So let's first talk about 958, or the, the Grants and Contributions Accounting Standards Update. So there are no real revenue recognition changes to 958. You'll still account for contributions as you are. This standard is really covering all of the revenue streams, or most of the revenue streams that's scoped out of 606. So namely grants, contributions, contracts, government contracts, I should say. So you typically haven't thought of government contracts as contributions. We expect most not all government contracts to fall under 958 to be classified as a contribution. And we also expect to see an increase in the disclosures of conditional grants. So that's for two reasons, really. For your contracts that cross your fiscal year, those will now be disclosed. The remaining contract will be disclosed in your footnotes. And then the other reason is the barrier requirement. So if there's a barrier to recognizing your revenue, you can't bring that onto your statement of activities. It will need to be on your balance sheet as a conditional grant. So right here, I have an example of a contract that crosses your fiscal year. So assume you're a 1231-19 year-end, and you have a state contract that has a June year-end. So at 1231-19, you've recognized six months into revenue. The remaining six months on that contract is going to come onto your footnotes as a disclosure of conditional grants. Now, you've seen this before with private grants. If you've received conditional grants from a private funder, conditional upon meeting certain requirements, you've had a disclosure in your footnotes. Um, but we haven't thought about this before for government contracts, so this is certainly new. Back to considering government contracts, I'm going to probably say this twice because it's so important. Not all government contracts will be accounted for under 958 or classified as contributions. You're going to need to assess who is the ultimate beneficiary of that government contract? If it is the general public, then chances are it's a contribution under 958. If the government is getting anything in return, however, you'll need to account for that contract under 606. So, okay, this standard really does two things. One, it kind of 
correct the old gap, which never really addressed these types of contracts. The revenue recognition really never addressed it. So it was diversity in practice, which is why the conditional revenue was never recognized mm -hmm. in the disclosed because it people didn't feel it fell into that standard, like a conditional grant, because people always saw it as private grants. Because you had a conditional private grant, you would disclose it. Right, as available to yeah. you, but public never really was addressed. And this got all caught up in the whole revenue recondition standard, right? Because didn't, what is this? This doesn't make sense. Because initially everything was going to fall in the rev rec. Under 606. 606, right, mm -hmm. and not this in the standard there. So two things happened when the exposure draft came out that we have to address the not for profit issue. We're going to do two things. We're going to address the diversity in practice on the old gap and also identify areas where 606 or revenue recognition doesn't apply to contributions, mm -hmm. right? This is a big change Absolutely. really from what we talked about last year because we had exposure draft and this some things. So this is really important mm -hmm. to think about this. So this is why we kind of want to spend time on this today. The second example of conditional grants to think about or that of the, the barrier requirement. So in the past, you may have received a $250,000 grant to fund 5,000 meals in a family shelter program. The conclusion was reached that the chance of not providing those meals was remote since your nonprofit had the infrastructure and the ability to provide those meals. So therefore, there was no conditions considered on that revenue. So when the 250000 came in, it was put on your statement of activities as temporarily restricted and recognized into revenue as the meals were provided. Under the new guidance, the 5,000 meals is now a barrier to recognizing that revenue. So when the 250000 comes in, it comes onto your balance sheet as a refundable advance and then gets recognized into revenue as the meals are provided. Because there's no further restrictions on that 250, it goes right into unrestricted or without donor restrictions. So barrier is a new concept. Yes, right. the barrier is yeah. definitely a new concept. Right. Consider milestone grants. You know, you may have a situation where funds are conditional and restricted. So on milestone grants, you'll get money to accomplish certain milestones. Once you achieve your milestone, the funds become unconditional but then you can't spend them until X specific purpose is achieved, so then they're restricted at that time. Right. So then the chance of not yeah. providing would be remote. Right, because right. you could know 5,000 meals might be nothing. You do, in the last 10 years you've done 20,000 meals a year. Mm -hmm. It's no problem, we know we're gonna meet it. It mm -hmm. doesn't matter under the new standard because it's a barrier. Right. So it doesn't, your history has nothing to do when there's a barrier. Barrier prevents it from being recognized until you meet that barrier. In this case, it's providing the meals with it. Mm -hmm. So, so this is a yeah. big change. And actually important to note in the grant writing phase, as you're applying for grants, you know, consider the barriers. How can you write your grants to not have these significant barrier requirements? And one of the ways to do that is expenses to be incurred are not a barrier. So if you apply for a grant for a specific program, but it's just for that program, it's to fund that program. Yes, it's restricted, but there's no conditions. There's no barrier identified. Right, because the, the thought there is a reason for that not being a barrier. You have control over spending money. You may not have as much control on meals because it's, it's a factor outside the organization to, for people to come in. So it's really a unit of delivery is the kind of the distinction between an expense. So that's always the, the issue to think about. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be important. So I've mentioned 958. I'm going to talk about 606 in a few moments. But, but what you're going to need to do is take your revenue streams and identify which accounting standard update am I applying to. So the key question to ask yourself and your team is, is your revenue stream the result of an exchange transaction or a contribution? So an exchange transaction, as a reminder, is defined as a reciprocal transfer 
in which each party receives and sacrifices approximate commensurate equal value. The grantor or funder gets something in return for providing the funds to your organization. So contributions will be accounted for under 958, and exchange transactions will be accounted for under 606. And it is possible for a revenue stream to be both part 606 and part 958. Who is the primary beneficiary of the goods and services um, under the purpose of the contract? So that is your key question. If it is the general public, then chances are it's a contribution. But if the funder is getting something in return, then it's going to be an exchange transaction. So other important questions to consider is who determines the amount? In a typical contribution, um, the donor decides, I'm going to give you X dollars. In an exchange transaction, the price is often negotiated and agreed to by both parties. Are there any penalties for non-performance? So non-performance under a contribution or grant, you might have to give the funds back in full to the donor. But under an exchange transaction, if there's non-performance, then there could be a penalties assessed. Is the payment part of an existing exchange transaction with an identified customer? Consider payments under Medicare or Medicaid programs, tuition assistance programs. If there's already an identified contract in place with a customer, that's another consideration. So this is a government contract, so we're going to look at it in two different ways. Option one, your organization receives a federal grant to conduct research on a certain disease. You must adhere to uniform guidance and submit a report summarizing your findings. Your organization retains rights to the findings and patents. So here, yes, the government's getting a, a report in return, but that report is really just to make sure that you did what you said you were going to do under the contract. That's not them getting any benefit. That's not them getting anything in return. So in this first example, your government contract will be classified as a contribution and you'll follow 958. Now let's review option two. All of the same facts and circumstances as in option one, except the government is specifying the testing protocol and retains the rights to the findings. So here they're getting something in return. You can almost guess that they're going to do something with this research. They're going to use this research to help them do something. Um, so you can see that they're getting commensurate equal value. So in this situation, your government contract, you'll follow the guidance under 606. So okay, this is probably where we get the most questions, right, is a government contract and a grant mm -hmm. that it may or may not be 606, revenue recognition versus a contribution. So the key thing is the direct beneficiary, the direct mm -hmm. benefit. So in option two, the government's getting the direct benefit because they have the rights and the findings they're going to use it perhaps for future funding, identify where needs are, and they're going to use it for something to really gain the value for it. Your organization really is just providing a service to them. Mm -hmm. That's all that they're really doing. In the right. first example, your organization is really public benefit is why the government gave you research money to the organization. Mm -hmm. The organization has all the rights to it, and they own, and they own it. Mm -hmm. right? So that's right. really the key thing. It's really, and this, it, it's, it can get complicated and tricky, so that's where we can really help you kind of go through these and identify them and have dialogue surrounding them. Mm -hmm. So here we're just trying to give you examples. It's not one size fits all. There's always facts Correct. and circumstances around mm -hmm. them. But I would say this is probably, for not-for-profit, one of the key areas that's complicated to really to assess first. So speaking of 606, let's turn our attention now <clears throat> to, that, to that standard. Um, so we've talked about how to identify which, which standard to apply. There's a five-step process in recognizing the revenue under 606. Step one, you're going to need to identify the contract with the customer. So a contract means that there are enforceable rights 
not necessarily in writing, and that it is probable that you will collect payment. Number two, you'll identify the performance obligations in the contract or the promises to transfer goods or services. And there may be multiple distinct performance obligations, so you're going to have to identify each one. Three, you're going to have to determine the transaction price for each performance obligation. We don't see this being a huge issue for most nonprofits. This will be complicated for commercial entities, for sure, but we don't see this to be a huge issue for nonprofits. The transaction price will be affected by variable considerations, such as incentives and penalties. Next, you'll allocate the transaction price to the performance obligations. Now, that's going to be based on standalone selling prices. So if you don't typically sell one piece of that contract on a standalone basis, you'll need to apply an, you'll need to make an estimate on that selling price. And then you're going to recognize revenue when the reporting organization satisfies the performance obligation. Consider over time if the customer benefit is over time or at a point in time when goods or services are delivered. So a practical expedient to note is that you can bundle services or performance obligations together when assessing the revenue. So this is going to look different for each agency. And then you'll also need to consider whether your revenue stream crosses your fiscal year or not. So if the, your revenue stream coincides with your fiscal year, you might be able to, to do you know, essentially less work with this. But make sure to consider, do you need gap-based financial statements in the interim periods for any reason, any bank issues or any funder requirements? So if you do, then you will need to definitely apply the five-step approach throughout the year as well. And I will note that you would benefit if most of your revenue streams fall under 958. 606 is a little bit more lengthy process in determining the recognition of the revenue. So Katie, we get a lot of questions on bundling. bundling. Like, how would you approach it? How would you bundle? Mm -hmm. Any advice? It's not a one-size-fits-all with most accounting issues, but you have to look at your business. So, you know, what works for you is not going to work for the agency down the street. So one of them might be by program type and by revenue stream. One of the most popular revenue streams affected in the nonprofit area by 606 is third-party revenue. So you might consider bundling your, your mass health dental services altogether, and your mass health medical would be another bundle. Um, you might consider bundling all your CBHI services in a multi-service agency, all of your early intervention together. So that would be, you know, yeah. the first consideration. And again, this, this might look different at each agency. So then it's revenue stream and then the subset of the revenue stream. Right. right? Correct. Yeah. So. so you can say that is a big process to go through and really strategically to think about and it could change. So that's where the lead time really needs to happen. You really can't wait till the start of the, the next year and say, oh, it's, it's July 1st. It's time to do rep right. rec. <laughs> You've really got to get everything set up kind of beforehand. So we're really suggesting you really think about these things now and, and really... Now, as Katie said, now's the time to act because it's, it's coming Absolutely. up upon us. Here are some of the major revenue streams in nonprofits, um, the most commonly affected by 606, I guess is the right term. You have your third-party fees, special events. So, you know, no matter what type of agency, I think a lot of us in this room can relate to having special events. Royalty agreements, membership dues, tuition, those are some big ones to know. And for special events, Katie, it's important when to focus on that when they straddle a year, right? When your special event is right after the yes. year end? So with special events, you know, the part that's a contribution, um, that's going to be affected by that barrier requirement significantly. So all of your revenue that you bring in, all of your cash receipts that come in for these events, 
those are now coming onto your balance sheet as deferred revenue, as opposed to probably in the past, what you've probably done is bring them on as temporarily restricted until that event happened. Well, now that event is your barrier. So all of these cash receipts are coming onto your balance sheet um, as deferred revenue until the event happens. So that can be a significant change. I know it is for a few of my, my organizations I work with. So I'm going to walk you through an example for healthcare. Some tips to think about. So this would be a third-party fees, your revenue stream. So the contract is with the patient. So the, between the agency and the patient, that's where the contract lies. Even though there's a third-party insurance agency contracted to pay on behalf of that customer, it doesn't destroy the contract relationship between the patient and the agency. So this does apply, 606. The bundle approach. So Matt, Matt and I kind of covered some examples here. This isn't going to be one size fits all. You'll, you'll need to make this assessment. I strongly recommend using this practical expedient um, when you are making your, your assessments and your determinations. The transaction price. So some of the considerations there. Um, explicit are contractual adjustments and discounts. For instance, you know MassHealth is going to pay 90% of your gross charge. So that's how you would record it. The 10% would be recorded as a contractual adjustment. So there's no change, but implicit considerations, this I see bring in some change, where I'll see this most in self-pay. You'll have to consider your history of your self-pay population. How much are you actually collecting on your self-pay? I think this will shift some of your bad debt expense off of your statement of functionals and onto your statement of activities. For instance, if you have a history of collecting 10% of your self-pay, that's how you'll record revenue at that time. So the difference will be recorded as a contractual adjustment instead of later when you're assessing collectability of, of self-pay, booking debt, bad debt expense at that time. We'll see that shift more off the statement of functionals and onto your statement of activities. You want to recognize the revenue as services are provided. So if it's a long-term, if it's a global transaction, you'll recognize over time. But for the fee-for-service, for the day of service, then you'll recognize on the day of. Fee-for-service probably won't change the way you're doing it now, other than the bad debt mm -hmm. will be netted with revenue at the time of the service, because you're estimating bad debt at that time. Mm -hmm. And that will be a change of a fee-for-service. Anything other than that is where there will be some changes. Correct. Right. So just as a FYI, that's where you're going to see the biggest change if you're in the third-party reimbursement world, is if you don't have your traditional fee-for-service revenue, bundled payment, global, global payment, um, capitation payment, that will be different in the future. So as you can see, it's a lot. Revenue recognition, there's a lot of change. Um, these standards, you know, we, don't, we definitely don't want to handle them lightly. I have some preparation and application tips up here that I'll just quickly walk through. You'll want to identify a person or a task force within your agency to really get on top of these, you know, start making the assessments. And here is where, where we can help you um, if you need help with key areas of implementation, we can help advise you on even where to start. You'll want to dissect your revenue streams into the two accounting standard updates, which I mentioned earlier. And then you'll want to make an assessment on the potential impact this will have on your accounting software and your systems. You know, once you decide, you know, you have all these revenue streams that are going to be followed under 606, you may, you may need to change your chart of accounts or the way your reporting comes out of the system. You'll want to develop and document all of, all of these considerations into a revenue recognition policy. So for those who have worked with AAF CPAs, which a lot of you have, you know that we love our policies to be documented and formalized. So this is, a, this is certainly another one. 
This is going to be a living document. This will change all the time. You may apply for a grant three months after you write the policy that the or organization has never seen. So you'll add that to the policy. Because contracts span over multiple years, you'll want to consider that at this time. So consider the impact of your financial statements on those barriers or on the multi-year contracts. And then develop a plan to train your staff. So this isn't just the finance team, but who else in the agency needs to know? Often members of development, sometimes even program people. Um, and then you'll want to make your boards aware as well. Thinking about that, that special event example I said, you know, that's coming off of your statement of activities, even though it's restricted and onto a balance sheet at year end if your event is happening right after year end. So it's a big change, um, and boards will want to know about that. So I will leave you with one positive note relative to 606. So this has been out for public companies now for, for some time. So there's been a lot of media coverage because it's been a lot of work for everyone. And in a recent survey, despite all of the challenges in rewriting policies and the costs that they've incurred during implementation, 94% of CFOs and CIOs surveyed said that they, over the long term, implementing revenue recognition will deliver a value return that exceeds the investment that they had to make. Yeah. So, 90, you know, that's a pretty high number, so there's some light at the end of the tunnel. I know it's a lot of work now, but a lot of the public company CFOs see the benefit to these standards.